Amen. Names. Names are important. Shakespeare asked in Romeo and Juliet, one of the most famous questions in tragedies, what's in a name? What is in a name? Names bring order to our society. Names help us connect to one another because our names bring identity. If we walked around only with ID numbers, we wouldn't have the same sense of value. If you think about in Les Mis, the story by Victor Hugo, where the main character, Jean Valjean, he's known by his prisoner number, 24601. And much of the story is him answering to 24601 by the guy that's chasing him. But then at one point in the story, in the musical, he stands up and he sings a soliloquy declaring his name. Because in his name, that's where his identity really is. Because identity is closely tied to our names. If you have a sibling with the name of Jack, and you go somewhere and you meet someone named Jack, suddenly, oh, there's a connection. Oh, I have a brother named Jack. That's how we connect. In fact, our identities are so closely tied to our name. Do you ever meet someone, you forget their name, but you won't ask them what their name is? You'll go to someone else and say, hey, do you know what their name is? I forget. Because you know you don't want to be offensive because that's their identity. You can't go up and say, I forgot your name. I'm sorry. Could you please tell me? We don't do that because it feels awkward. Well, in our series on the names of God, we don't merely identify God through his names. Through his names, we're gaining an understanding, and we're able to experience his attributes through his names. What his names do is show us that for every need, God is there. And that he's providing for us, but only in our surrender. That he's providing for us so that we realize our dependence upon him. In Exodus 15, we learned about Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals us in our bitterness. Not just physically, but in our bad attitudes. God is our healer. In Judges chapter 6, we learned about Jehovah Shalom. In Gideon's battle, we saw that God is our peace. In Genesis 17, we saw God handle impossible situations in the birth of Isaac. This morning, we're joining the Israelites on their journey again. And we're going to discover God as Jehovah Nissi, which means the Lord is our banner. Now, when we meet up with the Israelites in Exodus chapter 17, God has led them to a place called Rephidim, which ironically means a resting place. But there's not a whole lot of resting going on here because there's no water. Now, do you notice that God is deliberately leading his people from one crisis to another crisis just to demonstrate to them that he is sufficient for every need they have? See, Jehovah wants the Israelites to learn to trust him. They want, he wants them to learn to depend upon him and quietly rest in him. His desire is that they'll grow in their faith. 
that they'll mature spiritually. And based on the past experiences, they should have been built up in their faith. They should have been ready with expectation about what Jehovah was going to do for them. They watched the Red Sea part. They watched bitter water turn sweet because of a stick. They watched manna fall from heaven. Based on just those three events, their faith should have grown to a place of just great expectation of what God could do. But no, they come to a place with no water, and what do they do? Start complaining. They start quarreling. They even threaten to stone Moses over the fact that they don't have water. So Moses cries out to God, what do I do with these people? And God instructs Moses, go before the people. Did you forget? They want to stone me. You want me to go before these people? But remember, the Lord said, I will stand before you, Moses. He had faith in the power of God. Yes, the people want to stone me, but God is with me. So I can do it. There's my strength. There's my courage because I know the Lord is with me. So then he's instructed to take the elders of Israel and his shepherd's staff. Now the shepherd's staff has already served as an instrument of divine judgment for the Lord. Remember the ten plagues back in Egypt. It was the shepherd's staff that brought that judgment. It became a snake and devoured the sorcerer's snakes in Egypt. It turned the Nile River into blood. It brought judgment upon the ground as it was hit the ground and lice was crawling everywhere. It brought destructive hailstones and lightning. It brought forth the locusts that destroyed the crops in Egypt. And it was an instrument in parting the Red Sea, but also in it crashing down upon Pharaoh's army. And so the instructions continue as God tells Moses to strike the rock and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. And the result of that we read in the psalmist in 105 verse 41. He split open a rock and water gushed out to form a river through the dry wasteland. God caused a river of water to gush from a rock. The striking of the rock is an important portrait of the death of Jesus. Listen to Paul's identification of this rock as he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud and moved ahead of them. All of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them. And that rock was Christ. The rock struck by the rod, the shepherd's staff that Moses held in his hand, was a picture of Jesus, afflicted and wounded for our transgressions. Out of the smiting of Christ would flow rivers of spiritual waters to quench the thirst of sinners like you and me. 
Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. And so the water gushing out of this rock portrays the salvation that's now available to mankind. The Lord is inviting people, everyone who thirsts, to come to the waters. But in this mountaintop experience, as the Israelites are enjoying these refreshing waters that God has supplied, along came Amalek and attacked them. Just like the mountaintop. We can't stay there. we got to go back down to the valley. But who is Amalek? Amalek was the grandson of Esau. And the Amalekites are his descendants, which basically makes the Amalekites cousins to the Israelites. And here they are trying to annihilate them. Family. Some families are like that. (laughs) Now remember, Jacob and Esau were the twin sons of Isaac. Now Esau was born first with Jacob clutching Esau's heel on the way out. But it was Esau who owned the birthright. Until one day, after a really long day hunting, Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. He didn't see a need for the future blessing. What he only saw was the pressing and present need to satisfy his hunger. Esau sold out hunger, his blessing for his hunger, for immediate gratification. He gave up something of greater value for nothing. We do this today. We see teens and people give up their virtue for something less than love. Marriages end over meaningless disagreements. Parents escort their kids away from God's blessings in the name of sports and activities that have no eternal value. We need to be careful not to throw away the things of eternal value in our lives, for the things with no value, but bring us immediate satisfaction. The consequences are bitter and devastating and long-lasting. You see, when Jacob tricked Esau out of his birthright and stole Isaac's blessing on his deathbed, Esau became bitter. He wanted revenge. And then this was passed down through generations now leaving the Amalekites with one goal, destroy Israel at any cost. Jesus told us in John 10.10, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. You see, Satan will do whatever he can to protect us and prevent us from experiencing God's best. The Amalekites represent the forces of evil that work against God's plans, that work against God's purposes and God's people. And here we have them preying upon the weak and the weary. Satan's strategy is the same. He attacks when we're weak. He attacks when we're feeling tired. He knows our vulnerable areas, and that's what he goes for. He never fights fair. 
Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, states that the devil's ways are deceitful. The devil's ways are trickery. We see that all the way back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, when Satan tricked Eve by twisting God's words. Surely God didn't say this. And then it led to temptation, which led to sin. He's doing that today to every one of us. And so now we have these Amalekites representing the forces of the world, the forces of evil that are against God. They're attacking the Israelites. And so Moses calls together his leaders and gives them a plan. Choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow I will stand at the top of the hill holding the staff of God in my hand. Only some? Some of the weakened and weary men to fight a well-rested, experienced army? Just some men? Might Moses have understood that it was the power of the power of God that was fighting for them? Might he have understood that the battle belonged to the Lord and not to them? Do we understand when we face a battle, do we grasp the power of God that's within us? So Joshua took his men and he went to war. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. Now, Aaron was Moses' brother. Hur, it is speculated, was married to Miriam, which makes him Moses' brother-in-law. But either way, what it tells us is that Moses went to the mountain with men that he trusted. These were men that were close to him. And as long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage. Moses' arms soon became so tired he could no longer hold them up. How long can you hold your arm up? I can't do it very long. You know, the world record is over 40 years. There's a man that's actually, I saw a picture of him. He's had his arm up. For over 40 years. He can't move it now. It's stuck this way. But, so it can be done. But, but the point of our story is that Moses had to do it all day. Both arms raised all day. We can't do that alone. We can't go to battle on our own. We need our family. We need our friends. So his companions helped him. They found a stone for him to sit on and rest, and they each held up one of his arms until the battle was over. It took much longer than Moses would have liked, I'm sure. And it took more effort than he would have liked, I'm sure. He had seen God do miraculous things with only a word, and yet here Moses is putting out quite a bit of effort. But there's no record of him complaining, no record of his grumbling. Sometimes I wish I could do the same. Sometimes in the midst of a spiritual battle, when the chaos and craziness is swirling around me, I can't help but just expect God to snap his fingers and just make it right. 
Just fix this, Lord. I don't want to deal with this cranky person. Please, just fix it. I don't want to deal with this situation. Why are you putting me there? Can't I just walk away? Do I have to do this, Lord? Can't you just fix it? But God wants us to be vessels in his battles. That's where we learn to trust him. That's where we discover his faithfulness. And that's where we find our dependence upon him. See, when God uses us in battle, we're empowered and we're strengthened. But sometimes God uses us in someone else's battle, the way he's using Aaron and her. Moses couldn't have done it without the help of his family. But on the flip side of that, Aaron and her wouldn't have known that he needed help until Moses spoke up. Moses had to share his need. He had to share his weakness with his friends so they could help. Aaron and her, they didn't judge Moses for his weakness. Oh, come on, Moses. Your faith isn't strong enough. You can do this. Don't you believe God can take care of this? You don't need our help. They don't judge him. No, they simply came alongside him and helped. It's a beautiful illustration of how the family of God's supposed to work. Look around. People in here are family. We're here to support one another, hold each other's arms up in the times when we're tired. But it isn't easy to open up to another. It's not easy to share where you're struggling. It's not easy to share your weaknesses. But it's so important. Find godly people who you can trust. Let them know your battles. Let them know your doubts and your fears. If you feel like you cannot stand up on your own, Find that Aaron, find that her who's going to help you stand and hold you there. The world tells us that there's shame in weakness, that there's shame in sharing where we're scared. And God says, no, that's where you get on the path to strengthening. That's where you get on the path to finding me and finding my power. Well, now we're back to our text. So the Israelite men, they end up defeating the Amalekite army. And after the victory, Lord instructs Moses, write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. Joshua needed to remember the victory was God's. He needed to know that it was not his victory, but it was God. God's power that was working through him. We need to remember the past victories that God has given us. But we also need to remember what we went through at the time. You know, sometimes we look back and we say, oh, that was easy. We forget the struggle. We forget what we went through in the struggle. So then when the next battle comes, we just go back to, oh, God's going to just fix it. God's just going to fix it. No, sometimes you have to go through a battle, and it's lengthy. 
and it's going to wear you down. You have to remember what you went through before so you're strong enough to go through another. And finally, Moses built an altar there, and he named it Yahweh Nissi, which means the Lord is my banner. Often we think of banners as flags. My first idea of banner was when you go into stadiums and you see the sports teams, they have their banners all across the upper area, all the championships they've won. It's a reminder of all their victories. But in biblical times, a banner was just a rod. It was just a staff. And it had an ornament on the top. And that ornament was meant to glisten in the sun. It was a way for the army to know where their group was. It was a reminder that they were safe. It was a reminder that as long as that banner was flying and they could see it, that victory could be had. You see, the battle was won by the Lord that day in Rephidim. There was no magic power in the staff that Moses held, but what it did was serve as a visible symbol of God's power and God's presence before them. And God places his banner over his people. Jehovah Nissi. It means that he is the reason for our existence. With the Lord as our banner, we have purpose. That's our identity as his children. With the Lord as our banner, we know that he is present with us. And in his presence, we find strength to persevere. In his presence, we find endurance to overcome. And in his presence, we find the ability to push through when the obstacles seem impossible. Because without the power of his presence, we are helpless. Without the power of his presence, there's no hope of winning the battle. But we also can't just sit by the sidelines and let God do the fighting for us. Fighting for the follower of Christ is not an option. It's a mandate. Jesus told us in this world you will have trouble. Peter told us to be aware that Satan prowls around like a lion looking to who he can devour. There is no neutral ground for the follower of Christ. Every decision we make either furthers God's agenda or it opposes it. We are either with God in the battle or we're against him in the battle. You know, we've talked before about justification and sanctification. Justification occurs at the moment of our salvation, when we confess that we are sinners in the need of a Savior and believe that Jesus, the Son of God, died to pay our debt to a holy God. That's what was illustrated in the first part of chapter 17 this morning, when Moses struck the rock and rivers of living water came flowing out. But sanctification, on the other hand, is that ongoing process of becoming more and more like Christ. It's a result of the victory we have over our flesh. That's what we see illustrated in the battle with the Amalekites. Remember, the Amalekites represent the forces of evil that work against the purposes of God. The Christian life is a constant battle against the world, the devil, and the flesh. In Christ, we're new creations. The old is gone, the new is here. But 
and we are vessels of the Holy Spirit, but we still live in this flesh. Paul described it best in his letter to the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 17. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you are not free to carry out your good intentions. Our greatest battle is in subduing the old sinful nature within us, and it's a daily battle. But there's good news. With the Lord as our banner, we have victory. And Paul tells us where that victory is in Romans chapter 7. Oh, what a miserable person I am, he says. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. Our victory is in Jesus Christ. Jehovah Nissi is our Savior, Jesus. Jesus is our banner. As followers of Christ, we are to rally under him as our banner. That's where we find safety when we're fearful. That's where we find strength when we feel weak. And it's where we find victory for the battles that we face day in and day out. There's a battle that rages between flesh and spirit, just as it did between Joshua and Amalek. But look up. There's the Son of God with arms extended high making intercession for you and for me. All power and authority has been given to him. And because we are joint heirs with Christ, what's his is yours. You have no reason, no excuse to fly that flag of surrender. Don't give up. You need to stand firm. Put on the armor of God. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Church, we need to understand this, though, that victory only comes under the banner of the Lord. The Israelites could not have won without God. You know, in Numbers chapter 14, there's an example of them forging ahead in battle, knowing that God is not with them. Moses pleads with them, you know God is not with you. You cannot do it. And they are self-sufficient and self-righteous. No, we're going ahead anyway. And in that instant, without, instance, without God as their banner, the Amalekites and the Canaanites attack. They force the Israelites to retreat in defeat. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through Jesus Christ. Jehovah Nissi is the one who fights for his people. He's the one who protects his people. He gives us supernatural victory over our flesh and over the evil one. Jehovah Nissi provides purpose for life. He provides strength for the conflict. And he delivers us from the enemy. What is your battle today? Jehovah Nissi is there. He is your banner. 